Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, was sitting in his royal palace in Babylon, pondering an unexpected idea that came to him. Day after day, night after night, he just could not shake the thought, I've got to do something. I must build a temple in Jerusalem to Yahweh, the God of the Jews. The Jews in Babylon had been brought there between 597 and 586 B.C. after King Nebuchadnezzar captured and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And you remember King Nebuchadnezzar, right? With the fiery furnace and the statue and all. And that was that guy. Well, in time, the Persian Empire arose, ruled by Cyrus, and they conquered the Babylonians, capturing their capital in 539 B.C. Cyrus was aware that among his subject people were the Jewish people, an unusual people with unusual laws and unusual devotion to their singular God, Yahweh. Somehow Yahweh led Cyrus to the conviction that Yahweh had given him dominion over the nations, and therefore he ought to build Yahweh a temple in Jerusalem. We read that in Ezra 1 verse 2. But Cyrus had no idea that God was using him to fulfill his plan for his people. When the Jews were exiled to Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied that they would be exiled for 70 years, and God would use another kingdom to destroy Babylon. That's Jeremiah 25, verse 12. That would begin the process of the Jews returning to their homeland. Well, Persia was that kingdom. Cyrus was convinced that he ought to build the temple, so he proclaimed that any of the Jews were free to go back to Judah and help to rebuild, and he made sure they did not leave empty-handed. He commanded their neighbors to provide them with silver and gold and goods and livestock and freewill offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods, Ezra 1 verse 7. And those were used in the restored worship in Jerusalem. Just as God stirred up the heart of Cyrus, he stirred up the hearts of the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, along with many other Jews, and they arose to go up and build the house of the Lord. Ezra 1 verse 5. You can feel the excitement building in the air as they're leaving Babylon, heading for Jerusalem, and they are going to rebuild the temple. For so long in the land of their exile, the Jews were unable to really, truly worship God according to his word. Seventy years earlier, God used a foreign nation to punish them for their idolatry. But now he has purged them of their idolatry. And God was going to use another nation to bring them back and restore them to their land. And soon their relationship with God would be fully restored. And once again, praise to Yahweh would be their priority and would fill the streets and the temple in Jerusalem. And I'll share a lot more about that story right after this. Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word, further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. Good day to you, God's Word for Life listeners. I hope you're having a good week so far. You're listening to LJ Harry. I'm your host. And you're listening to the God's Word for Life companion podcast, companion along with the small groups and the Sunday school or midweek studies. We are looking today at a lesson that is dated August 14th, 2022, entitled Restoring Worship. And our text comes from the book of Ezra, chapter 3, verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. That was coming later, and we'll learn more about that. 
under Zerubbabel's leadership. And don't worry, you don't have to learn how to spell Zerubbabel. Over 42,000 Jews, along with 7,337 of their servants, traveled back to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. About three months after they arrived, when the seventh month Tishri, which is around September to October, had come, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem, Ezra 3, verse 1. And Yeshua, the high priest, along with some of his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the civil leader, along with some of his associates, they built a new altar on the very spot the original altar had been built in order to offer burnt offerings to the Lord according to the law of Moses. Now here's a question. What was the significance of building that new altar on the selfsame spot where the old altar had been built? Well, the Israelites' first act of worship was to restore burnt offerings, especially those that occurred in the morning and the evening. Those two sacrifices were offered for all the members of the community, not just a single individual. These sacrifices were fundamental, foundational to the Jewish people maintaining this covenant relationship with God. According to the law of Moses, these daily burnt offerings were the means to cover people's sin and turn away God's wrath from them. So every morning and every evening, these burnt offerings reminded the Jewish people of their sin, but assured them of God's grace, which he provided for them so they could continue in relationship with their holy God. Here's another question. What was the significance of the daily sacrifices being offered twice a day? With Tishri, the seventh month, was always a particularly sacred month for the Jewish people. During that month, they were commanded to observe the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. That's a busy month. It seems appropriate that during that sacred month, they would not only restore the daily burnt offerings, but also begin to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, the most joyful of those annual feasts. And they would begin to offer the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, the sacrifices for all the other appointed feasts of the Lord, and begin to bring free will offerings to the Lord. You can see already that God is restoring worship to his people. The first feast they celebrated was the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was a joyful celebration. Beginning on the 15th day of the month, God commanded them to rejoice before him for seven days. For so Moses had written, you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees. I'm not sure what a splendid tree is, but it sounds delicious. Branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Why rejoice? Why weigh fruit and branches before the Lord for seven days? Because God had delivered them from Egyptian slavery. And that feast was a week-long reminder that they would never forget that God had set them free. So here's a question about the Feast of Tabernacles. Why would God feel the need to command the Israelites to rejoice during the Feast of Tabernacles? It is interesting that they restored worship before the temple was rebuilt. The foundation of the temple had not even yet been laid. According to Ezra 3, verse 6, From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. Matthew Henry commented on their actions, urging believers to follow their example. He wrote, and I quote, From the proceedings of the Jews on their arrival, let us learn to begin with God and to do what we can in the worship of God when we cannot do what we would. They could not at once have a temple but they would not be without an altar. End quote. When they arrived in Jude and Jerusalem, the Jews had a great deal of work to do. 
It's understandable they took care of their basic needs. They built their homes and they needed to survive. They needed a place to live. But once they met those basic needs, they made fully restoring their worship and their relationship with God their priority. No doubt they prayed and they sang the songs of Zion as they took care of those basic needs. But when they were free from that initial labor of meeting their basic needs of food and clothing and shelter, they built their altar. It was their priority. The Israelites' example show us that we can and we should and we must make worship our priority. Our world, our flesh, the devil, will constantly work to distract us from worship by making other things seem to be priority, seem to be necessary, certainly seem to be more desirable, but nothing, not a zero-zip zilch can take the place of worship. No one will make it happen for us. No one will worship for us. We can't go along our moods or our feelings. That can't be our guide. We do not worship just because we feel like it. We worship God because he is worthy. Our gratitude for God, covering our sins and saving us should be the foundation for us to choose day by day to make worship our priority. So why is it such a challenge to make worship a priority in our daily lives? After the Jews restored worship, they began to prepare for the work on the temple. They hired masons and carpenters, and they sent food and drink and olive oil to the people of Tyre and Sidon so that they could obtain cedar logs from them to use in constructing the temple. It may be that they were hiring workers from Tyre and Sidon as well because food, drink, and olive oil were standard wages for laborers. In the second month of the second year, after they arrived back in Jerusalem, work began on the temple under the supervision of the trusty Levites, those 20 years old and older. The first task, of course, was to lay the foundation upon which the rest of the temple would be built. When the workers had finished laying the final stone for the foundation, great joy swept throughout the Jewish people. They had been so long without a temple. Seventy years. The people had a heart for worship. We see that as they built the altar and now... They had the real evidence that a place for worship, a place where they could reconnect with God, would finally be theirs. The priests put on their priestly vestments and they took up trumpets and the sons of Asaph among the Levites took up their cymbals ready to play before the Lord. All this was done just as King David had prescribed. As the trumpets were played, the cymbals were clashed. They lifted their voices to sing praise and thanksgiving to God. And scripture reads, they sang together by course, or they sang responsively. The choir of the singers were divided into two groups, and one group sang one line, and the other group sang the next line. Maybe you remember in Sunday school singing the song, Hallelujah, 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 Hallelujah. And then the other group would sing, Praise ye the Lord. I'm not a good singer, (laughs) but that's how it sounded. They sang this song, Praise God, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. When the Jewish people saw the foundation laid, they were looking not just at foundation stones, but recognized in them God's goodness and unfailing love and faithfulness toward them. The King James Version and the New King James Version normally render this word as mercy, but the Hebrew word translated it, it includes the idea of compassion and forgiveness. It's a richer term that refers to Yahweh's covenant love toward his people, a love that will never fail. He was compassionate and forgiving because he is good and he was in covenant with the Jewish people and he would faithfully remain in covenant. And he had to punish them for their idolatry, but he had not forgotten his covenant toward them. 
He forgave them and graciously brought them back into the promised land. And now they sang thanksgiving for God's favor and unfailing covenant love toward them. And as they sang, suddenly all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid and the noise was heard afar off. Scripture doesn't say that the people were directed to shout. It seems just to be a spontaneous overflow of praise and thanksgiving. As the gathered people heard the trumpets and the clashing cymbals and they heard the singing and their hearts were so filled with gratitude for God's grace, they wanted to get in on the praise. The temple, it was for them too, not just for the religious folk. The temple was for everybody. They had just as much of a right to express their thanksgiving as the Levites and priests did, so they shouted. And the Bible describes it as noise. But God loved it. God had done so much for the Jewish people, he mercifully brought them back to their own land. And in response, they restored sacrificial worship and sang and shouted to the Lord. Whether through regular congregational worship with singing and playing or spontaneous joyful shouting to God, heartfelt worship should always fill the house of God. God saved them, God provided for them, and he has saved us and provided for us. We don't have to offer burnt offerings, of course. Jesus Christ was our sacrifice on the cross, the only offering we need, but we offer a sacrifice of praise to him. If the Jewish people sang and played, we should sing and play. If they shouted, we should shout. It's right to make a joyful noise to the God of our salvation. Some people may think vibrant Pentecostal worship is strange or inappropriate or even irreverent. It's not dignified enough, but the only thing strange or inappropriate would be to experience God's unfailing love and salvation, to be filled with the power of His Holy Spirit, to be delivered, set free, forgiven, and then be quiet about it. Worship should always fill God's house. Worship should fill our lives, fill our house, outside of the church house, into our house. All of life should be a sacrifice of worship to God because His unfailing love is neither limited by time nor space. And it's certainly not limited to the church house. His grace and love toward us are all-encompassing, touching every aspect of our lives. Therefore, our worship should be all-encompassing. We should live a life of worship. God didn't have to save me. He didn't have to save you and bring us in a covenant relationship with Him, but He did. He does not have to forgive us over and over and over when we sin. He doesn't have to heal us. He doesn't have to console us and comfort us in our suffering, but he does. He owes us nothing, but he has given us everything. So along with the psalmist, let us sing, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Here's one more question. What does it mean? What does it look like to make our lives a house of worship? Okay, let's wrap this up. True worship always grows out of right relationship. The foundation for that right relationship is the forgiveness of sins. When the Jews arrived back in Jerusalem, they first built the altar so their sins could be dealt with and their relationship with God could be fully restored. And after their sins were dealt with, they could freely, joyfully enter into worship. For worship to be fully authentic and heartfelt, we must confront our sinfulness. Before we ever get to church, before we ever start praising God in private even, let's first go to the altar and confess our sins. 
God is faithful and just to forgive us. And when we confess, he forgives. When we forsake, he forgives and cleanses us. So now that we've been cleansed of our sins, we're ready to worship and have fellowship with our holy God. Worship must be the priority of our lives. It's far too easy to treat our relationship with God and our worship as somehow secondary to everything else. But nothing is more important than God. He must be our priority. But is he? Well, it's not hard to figure that out. How do we spend our time and our money? That'll show us where our true priorities lie. These Jewish people modeled what it meant to make worship a priority as soon as they could. They built the altar, restored the sacrifices, celebrated the feasts. We must let God search us and reveal to us if worship is not our priority, then we must make it so. Let's ask God to stir us, to shake us, to make it so. True worship is always rooted in our gratitude for God's unfailing covenant love and everything he's done for us. The Jews in Jerusalem saw the foundation stones laid and saw them as a concrete expression of God's goodness and unfailing faithfulness and love to them. So they sang to him, they played to him, they shouted to him. Can we do any less? Worshiping and making a joyful noise before the Lord are the appropriate responses for those who have received a far greater gift than a physical temple. We have been saved from sin and our bodies are the temple's of the living God. Let's pray today. Let's first pray a prayer of repentance. Let's confront our sin and ask God to forgive us. And then let's worship him. Let's ask God to help us to make worship our priority and enter into this covenant relationship or re-enter this covenant relationship with our wonderful, faithful, gracious, and good God. Lord Jesus, I ask you to search my heart today and, and know me. Know my thoughts. Know if there's anything wicked in me. Know if there's anything that separates me from you. If there's anything that drives me away from you. And I ask you to forgive me. Of anything I have said or done or thought or harbored in my heart. If I have bitterness or unforgiveness or hatred or selfishness or covetousness or foolishness. If I have jealousy or envy or anything that separates me from you in my heart. Please forgive me. I I give it all to you, and I'm not going to hold any of it back. I give it all, surrender all of it to you, lay it all on the altar, and ask you to forgive me and cleanse me. As I confess and forsake it, I ask you to forgive and cleanse me in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you. And help me and help all of us to make worship our priority. Help us to live a life, lead a life of worship. Everywhere we go and everything we do, may we be worshipers. Help us, Jesus, to follow after you with all our heart and worship you and make it our priority for the goodness you have shown to us. May we be ever grateful and always worship. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Thank you so much, God's Word for Life listeners. Hey, I challenge you today. If somebody asks you what you do, maybe you're flying somewhere or you're traveling or you're in a a foreign place and somebody says, ah, so what do you do? I challenge you today. Don't go immediately to what you do to make a living and make your house payment. But I challenge you to tell them you're a worshiper of Jesus. And then, oh yeah, and I, I do construction, or and I'm an accountant, and I'm a pastor. But first, my identity is not just my vocation. It is my priority. I'm a worshiper. I follow Jesus. Let's see what happens when we make worship our priority. 
Hey, be sure to click subscribe and share, and you will never have to miss an episode, and none of your friends or family or even your enemies will have to miss an episode. So share it with them. Let them know about the God's Word for Life Companion podcast. Head on over to PentecostalPublishing.com. Pick up a lot of great resources, Bibles, Bible studies, devotionals, books, music, wonderful resources to help you and help others in your devotional life and your walk with Jesus Christ. Next week, we continue this series on the importance of God's Word. And our episode stems from a lesson dated August 21st, 2022, entitled Building on God's Word. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you next week and always look forward to learning and living out God's Word for Life. Thank you for listening to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, where together we explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you are looking for other Bible study tools and resources to encourage you in your walk with God, visit us today at PentecostalPublishing.com.